one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hello and welcome to the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby, and today, can you increase productivity simply by growing the economy? In short, do we work harder when we're busier? In which case, pump priming the economy should improve productivity. But does that theory stack up? That's today on the Debunking Economics podcast. Now, Steve, there's a theory from a Dutch economist, Petrus Johan Verdun, back in 1949, that if you boost GDP uh, by whatever means, perhaps through some sort of fiscal stimulus, then you will automatically see productivity grow. Now, we normally think of productivity growing out of technological change, uh, but this seems to hint that if the economy is growing and people are rewarded, they will work harder. So, is there any uh, any supporting evidence to this theory? Well, this is you know, the Verdun's law. Um, it's one of these empirical observations, which is a bit like another one called Oaken's law. And Oaken uh, observed that if, if GDP grew by 3% or more, unemployment would fall. And it, again, it's an empirical regularity. When, you get, when, the, when the GDP grows at that particular rate, then unemployment uh, grows more slowly uh, or, or falls because... Um, the, the factors of influencing how many people you employ, uh, first of all, the number of people being born, so what's the actual rate of growth of the labour force? And back when, uh, when Oakham was writing, the, the, the uh, labour force is growing at about one to one and a quarter percent per annum. Uh, and then the other factor was productivity, and that was growing when he wrote at about, about one, and a, one and a half to two percent per annum. So you had to be above both those in terms of actual real GDP growth for the level of unemployment to fall. And so Verdun's law is part of that particular argument as well. And that what that says is what's the causation? So what, what uh, you're getting out of Oaken was the idea that if you grow by more than X percent, then with, pop, with, uh, with a combination of uh, labour, the labour force and the productivity of each worker, and I'm putting that in inverted commas, by the way, because I don't believe it is the productivity of each worker. Uh, but if, if the sum of the growth of population and the growth in the productivity of each worker was uh, less than the rate of economic growth, then the, the, the proportion of population employed would rise and therefore unemployment would fall. That's Oaken's law. So Verdun's law is to say, well, actually, the causation effectively runs from GDP change to productivity if GDP change exceed is uh, if GDP change grows by more than a certain amount then inverted commas labor productivity will grow as well and the, these two regularities were sort of you know, rules of thumb that used to exist back in the days when we actually had empirically derived macroeconomic models rather than the nonsense we have these days. Uh, but yeah. why why would that be apart from um you know the, the idea that if gdp grows productivity grows um except for the fact that um you know people i guess if you're if you're busy if you're selling stuff and there's a bigger demand for it then you're going to work harder because uh because demand is there is is, the, is that what's sitting behind this theory 
Well, this is the way people normally think about it, and I think it's wrong. Right. Um, okay. And the reason that I think it's wrong is that I don't think work has got any more productive since the days of uh, of, uh, of uh, Hannibal, and I don't mean Hannibal Lecter. Uh, <laughs> I want to go right back to the days of the Roman Empire and say that, if anything, the productivity of people is lower now than it was back under Hannibal and Caesar. And the reason is what we do uh, as, as workers, uh, this, this is obviously implied to unskilled labour, and I've got to qualify that straight away, because... What we, when we look at the, all, all the calculations that are done behind things like Oaken's Law and Verdun's Law and so on, relate to unskilled labour. It's not talking about the contribution of Einstein. It's talking about the contribution of somebody who can be told, pick up that log and move it from there to there, uh, which is unskilled labour. So what, what unskilled labour is, is effectively, uh, all you have to have is sufficient intelligence to follow an instruction and apply the energy that you, that you have possess to, to, to carry that instruction out. So back in Hannibal's day, Hannibal sounds good because we don't talk about Caesar Lecter, it's always Hannibal Lecter. Uh, back in Hannibal's day, you said, go and grab that rope and put it around that elephant's neck. Um, and these days you say, go and grab that... Uh, that um, um, widget, steel, whatever it is. Widget, yeah. widget and, sh- and shove it into the hole that's uh, you know, you know, five millimetres below the, the top of the box. Right, so you're saying you're not going to do that any faster no matter what. But isn't, isn't part of this argument to say, well, actually, you might do it a bit faster. If you, if you feel as though times are good, the economy's going strong, there's increased demand, your employer might say, look, if you stick that widget in that hole 10,000 times, I'm going to give you a, uh, a 10% bonus. You know, there have been... That's, st- not, that, that's, that's not what changes. Isn't the, isn't, the, isn't the speed at which the worker changes, it's the hole into which he shoves the widget that changes because with the <laughs> higher level of... Um, pardon my pardon expression. With the, with, with the higher level of uh, economic growth, uh, you have shortages of labour developing as well. But what you certainly have is, and particularly if you have high wages, mm. uh, it becomes it becomes advantageous to the to the employer to say, I'm going to see if somebody can invent a machine uh, that will do what that worker was doing, and therefore I have a machine which replaces the worker. But there's such a level of, de- of demand going on at the same time that more jobs are springing up for the workers that are displaced uh, than, uh, than, than the number of works themselves being displaced. So unemployment is falling, but the actual technology that's been work- with which the work is being done uh, has changed, and that technology needs less labour. Therefore, when you do your mathematics of dividing your... if you Because the way, the way labour productivity is defined is simply dividing GDP by the number of workers. That's the definition of labour productivity. Divide GDP, which is... Mm. We, and this is where a whole range of um, of issues come in in terms of what the hell are you measuring? Uh, because if you look at how GDP is defined, GDP is defined in dollars. Okay, that's that's um, no. and and remember, and we're even we're even doing a deflation there because it's not actual dollars; it's dollars to some base here, which we've calculated using a set of indices. There's a, I think I, I, I'm a bit uh, it's, it's so just for inflation, in, in other words. Uh, yeah, well, you, you work at a, you use a, what's called the the sprays index, I think it is. To um, there's the, the sprays and parse indexes, two different ways of working out uh, today's output and yesterday's prices, so that you can there sort of say what's the actual quantity change between last year and this year. So first of all, you do that to get your your real GDP. Then you divide that real GDP by the number of workers you hired. So what's the employment rate, the level of employment? That's easy enough to do. So you get a number, 
which uh, in, in when I when I do this, I'm following Goodwin's conventions. So I I use the letter A for labour productivity. So A is output, which is Y divided by labour, which is L. Now that's the way it's calculated. Now GDP, which is the Y, is calculated in effectively dollars per year, and the labour is calculated in hours uh, hours per year. So what you're getting is dollars per per hour yeah. of labour coming out as your calculation. Now, um, that's a that's a reasonable, in terms of its dimensionality, that's a reasonable concept to have. But what is actually giving you those dollars per hour, that's the common, that's that's the productive system, which is where you're using one of my, my I now have, at least I have two hobby horses these days. I've improved over those having one hobby horse. Uh, it's labour, machinery, and not debt, Energy, right. Those are the, okay. So what you're seeing is something has changed the amount of energy that you're generating through production, and the two potential sources are your workers are putting in more calories, or your machines are pumping through more gigajoules. Uh, and believe me, because they're exactly the, in terms of of, of units, the uh, um, if I'm working with you know, ultimately energy can all be resolved down to the same. Uh, the same measurements you measure in, in, in kilowatts and things like that. But uh, the energy that the machines pump out is far greater than the energy we can ever do. So what you're doing is you're replacing, you've got a worker who might be able to whack in, and then quite seriously, this is the level of energy we can put in. The maximum amount of energy that, is, that can be sustained by a worker uh, is about the level of an old-fashioned light bulb, mm. about between 80 and 80. Arnie Schwarzenegger might manage 120 watts. Most of us manage about 90, okay? Um, so that, that, that's the amount of power putting in. And that hasn't changed since the days of Hannibal. Um, that's been constant. Right. So what's changed is the amount of energy being put through by the machines. And what happens, I, I believe, and when you have the type of thing which Verdun is observing, uh, is that when the level of economic growth is high, then the desire to invest and in develop machinery. technology yeah. Yeah, rises yeah. and therefore you get a positive feedback between the level of growth and the rate of, of innovation and that's what gives you his relationship. Right, but don't you also get uh, the fact that, you know, if, you're, if, you're, if the economy is growing, then it, people are employed in, in the same jobs. They, have, um, they don't have doubt and uncertainty. Uh, they don't need to be retrained for completely new jobs. They can be trained to do their jobs better perhaps, but it's not like... Like it, whereas if you've got a downturn, then people are going to become less productive because part of that, you know, that that uh, that output per hour is going to be involved in people who are employed, but now they're employed in a completely new profession because coal mining isn't around anymore, and all of a sudden they've got to become accountants. And I've absolutely no doubt that coal miners can become accountants, but it might take a couple of days of training, so a bit of downtime. <laughs> uh, oh, we've lost, lost fifteen for supporters. <laughs> I only jest, but I mean, you know, you take my point. Uh, when when uh, when the economy's down, when the chips are down, people are having to retrain, um, perhaps do things that they're not terribly good at, and maybe that uh, decreases productivity. Well, in fact, what, what's what's more relevant is that when you have, and this is actually, I can I can relate to this personally because uh, being I mean, my my advanced age of sixty five these days, uh, I was uh, I was I was twenty in nineteen seventy three. And that's, I was still at the university at that stage. Uh, you get a part-time job extremely easily. There were part-time jobs everywhere for university students, when, almost whenever you wanted to do them, because the unemployment rate in Australia at the time, uh, you can check my memory on this one, but I think it was 1.5%. 
Now, that is one-third of the current level of unemployment, less than one-third, almost a quarter of the current level of unemployment in Australia. And that's in America too. It never got down to quite to those levels, but it was uh, at 4% when no statistician had fudged the numbers to make it look like it was 4% when it was actually higher. So there's been an enormous amount of fudging of the way we define unemployment ever since 1970, pretty much 75, because 74 is when the wheels started falling off the global economy. And I can remember my own mindset. Um, this is this is this is a, a, a bit of a family family detail here. But my father was a very conservative banker back in the days when such things could get a job. And uh, Dad would uh, tell me, "So you're at university to to get a job?" And I said, I'm "Saying no, Dad, I'm there to get an education." And he was offended and offence, and, and, and couldn't understand my attitude. But at the time, there was no problem with getting a job. Mm. You just simply knew to get a job when you when you got a, whatever. Pretty much whatever position you wanted to go for, there would be a position available because, to quote uh, the, the white paper on employment that defined uh, post-Second World War um, macroeconomic policy in Australia uh, by a, a classic uh, a brilliant public servant called Nugget Coombs, uh, he said, there shall be the aim of government policy be shall to be imply such pressure on the economy as to guarantee a shortage of men rather than a shortage of jobs. So you're saying back then when you were a 20-year-old, people weren't any less or more productive than they are now. The increase in productivity is all coming from uh, mechanisation and automation. But, but more than that, I'm also saying that back at that stage, you had complete confidence that you'd get out there and get a job, and there was no one, there was no nothing gnawing at your stomach about the possibility of employment. And what that meant was everybody who went to work was feeling pretty happy because uh, you know you could go somewhere else if you wanted to, mm. and therefore it was in, employers that they wanted to have you hang around. You better make it a pleasant place to work. Um, there was a, a sense of solidarity. Everybody, it, it, it was it was a much more comfortable time. Uh, than, than it's been for people growing up since then. And it's, if, if, if you haven't lived through it, you can't really uh, understand the difference. But I now see my students, I'm now retired, of course, a couple of weeks ago from Kingston, but my students come along desperate to get a job. Mm. And there's a sense of anxiety about them. And not only the anxiety about that, the anxiety about the debt they're carrying, can they afford the debt? You know, you know, I'm getting this education to get a job, but can I afford can I afford the job when I've got it because of the debt I'll have because of the education? Yeah. So the extent to which they're being eaten away at psychologically these days is is awful compared to what I experienced. And yet, look, I, the, the reason why I wanted to talk about uh, Verdun's law was because it raised the question to me, mm-hmm. if it was the case that if you sort of pump-primed an economy, you would increase productivity because more people would be working and they, they would each become more productive, then it would make sense to pump-prime the economy. But if you mm. say it's actually the other way, and when the economy is doing really well, then companies are more inclined to look for technological change to increase productivity. That's not helping employment one jot, is it? It's increasing productivity, but it's not helping employment. So we are actually no better off if the no, government. No, we is- are better off. We, we are better off both ways because if you have that world where where uh, where employment is high, where the growth where economic growth is high. Uh, what that actually, be, because you didn't have labour shortages, that is inspiring you to develop technology mm. which would, can, can, can take the place of the labour shortage and enable you to expand output even further. So you actually get a rate of progress which is higher. And this is one of the intriguing well, elements. Out of fear. That, so those people that you're talking about on your course who can't find a job are going to have to invent uh, a job. Is that what you're saying? 
No, no, no. The people who employ, want to employ them are going to have to invent technology mm. uh, to 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 uh, to make up for the fact that there aren't enough people coming out of the workforce. So you've got to improve the technology because the profitability is so high. You know, you've got all the all these positive feedback focuses uh, are making you want to innovate more rapidly, and that's an intriguing element because the biggest productivity change, uh, in, pretty much in the history of human civilization. Uh, began at the time of the Industrial Revolution because you suddenly started using machines which could harness fossil fuel power to do the work that used to be done by workers. And of course, rather than, and, and now, now that actually, it actually began with um, pumping water out of, um, out of uh, mines in coal mines in, in, the, in the UK uh, because when you mine, the water would come running in from the, you know, the subterranean water sources. And you had to pump the water out all the time. You had to get the coal out. That was the original need for the steam engine. But once you started harnessing uh, that sort of stuff, then you had other ideas coming along as well. And probably the classic that relates to labour directly, re- machine replacing labour, is the spinning jenny. So this was, uh, you know, if you think about the the original way you spun uh, a, 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 you know, wool into a, a, a some sort of fibre into into. Uh, uh, what do you call it? Uh, cotton. You, you spin cotton or you spin mm. wool to get a fibre rather than getting a massive, a massive. Uh, you're getting a, a thread to get a bit of thread out of a mass of fibres. Um, the, the spinning, the spinning wheel was the way to do that. The spinning jenny was invented. I've forgotten the person's name, but it was invented by a Scottish uh, uh, inventor. Innovator, yeah, inventor, Scottish inventor, and it initially had six. So what it was it was six wheels attached. And then one person, one human being was turning it so that that person could produce six times as much as a worker working with one. Now, that that happened in Scotland. And one of the when historians have looked at why did it take place in Scotland rather than anywhere else in the world, the thing they found was that the wages in Scotland at that time were extremely high. And when you looked at if you could replace six workers with one worker, uh, then that was a profitable equation for you because the cost of developing the machinery, the higher cost of the spinning jenny over a simple uh, single spinning wheel, that was all made up for the fact that you replaced six, five very expensive workers with it and you came out ahead. No. When they did the same calculations for France, you'd lose money. So it, 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 off, Because it, the it, French it, workers weren't getting paid as much, so there wasn't the, yeah, there, there, wasn't the wasn't, same wasn't, incentive. Wasn't, so what, do those, sco- what do those five Scottish workers go and do now, though? Well, that, that's because you now you, you've now said you've suddenly got the coal coal industries being going gangbusters because you're now using steam engines. They could often find themselves working as sheet metal workers in in building uh, building boilers. Yeah. And you get the t- the trade of the the, the uh, what they call fitter and turner starts turning up. So the t- the type of work to which unsc- relatively unskilled labour is directed. Right, but what you then get is an exponential curve, don't you? Because if then they go into another industry and they're too expensive yeah. and they find a, a replacement for them, then uh, yeah. then they're replaced by machinery, and so it goes on, and that can't and go on forever. Well, it can, and this is the but thing. But it uses up more energy, which is your big bugbear. That's not it uses up more energy. We've we got to the point now where we're breaking the, the planetary boundaries and mm. doing it, but nonetheless, uh, the, the, the capacity for that story to keep on going uh, if we weren't producing just on in a biosphere, or we had the biosphere was say the size of Jupiter rather than the size of Earth, then this could go on in def- a much much longer period. We've simply reached the point where we're reaching the, the planetary boundaries of that. However, the actual process itself 
can go on indefinitely. But and their wages saying, are going to go down every time, aren't they? I mean, they, they, they've, well, they, 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 every time they, they make a shift, supposedly, to, to another mm-hmm. job, which, as we know, is not possible anyway. You know, you've, you've got to retrain and you might not have the aptitude. But ignoring, ignoring that, let's behave like true economists and assume anyone can do anything. Uh, if I'm on a well-paid job and then that gets replaced by a bit of machinery, I go to the next best option, uh, which presumably is going to pay, pay me a little less. That gets paid replaced by machinery. At some point, and then I get paid a little less. You're going to reach the point where you, you like the French and you can't get no, replaced it, by the no, machinery. No, in fact, when you went back to the position that Vernon Law is describing as saying that there's a positive relationship between GDP growth and productivity growth. If mm. you have this process going on, uh, then you, you've got high GD levels of GDP, therefore high levels of employment, therefore rising wages. And this is all like a hot potato being managed by the capitalists rather than a cold one by the workers. That uh, to keep up with this, uh, you know, to, to continue getting ahead of the, the rising capacity of labor to bargain, then you have to innovate and the technological growth rate uh, uh, cuts back into that, that problem. But if you let the if you don't innovate, then you um, you know you you lose you, you you lose your capacity to produce in the first place. So there's a there's a positive feedback process, meaning this is normally a boom situation. But it is cyclical. This is where Gordon this, this the, the work that I do in terms of how I model uh, capitalism cycles is using Goodwin uh, using the work of Richard Goodwin, and he assumed a constant level of labour productivity. Uh, as part of this very simple model, and I, I use that in my simple modelling as well. But what we're talking about is adding a feedback process now where if you have a high level of GDP growth, then you get a higher level of increase in labour productivity. Now, uh, and then when you have a low level of GDP growth, you get a low level of increase in labour productivity. Now, that gives you more extreme cycles, but you're best to get past the point, uh, the halfway point, and get into the into the region where you're always getting as much for as long as possible, higher labor productivity. And this is what we saw in the in the boom days of capitalism. It's boom and bust, obviously. But uh, when you have a boom going on, then you have a higher level of, of labor productivity growth. And that positive feedback that Verdun talks about exists. So I'm still struggling with this link between having surplus labor uh, and that leading to innovation. Because on the other side, you're getting... No, no, no. You, no, you don't have surplus. You have shortages of labor. Right. Okay. Okay, it's a shortage of labour when you don't have enough labour. When, it, when it's so going back to our, going back to our six Scottish yeah. people, one of whom keeps yeah. his job, and the other five are replaced by automation. Why? And all of a sudden, they're, they're you know they're on the well, this, on the dole. Why would that be a sort of situation that would create it, the opportunity for more innovation? Then no, it isn't. They're they're they're, they're demanding high wages, or mm. and they they they're telling you if you know if you don't pay me the high wages, I'm going to go across and become a a fitter and turner, and uh, you. Uh, you're one employer that brings in the spinning jenny right. and you can say to your five blokes, well, go off and become fitters and turners. They'll say, all right, we will. And off they go because that industry is expanding. And then you're, you, you then show what can be done by bringing in spinning jennies into producing uh, producing thread and cloth. Yeah, yeah. So the next thing you know, that's now being taken on by somebody else and it spreads. So these things, innovations not innovations don't completely replace old technology in one go. That's this is Schumpeter's argument about why people innovate in the first place because you are getting an advantage over your competitors in doing it. Conversely, it, innovation often happens as well when when the chips are down, don't they? We look at uh, you know quite a few successful businesses. They've all come out of times when uh, when the economy has been struggling. I guess because, largely because there's not a great deal of competition for them. 
But couldn't couldn't you use the same argument to say, well, look, if we've if if things aren't going well, then you need to do what you're doing better, and then that becomes an opportunity to say, well, okay, we, uh, you know, we we're going to use mechanization to to try and help growth. I guess not because well, look, no one's buying anything. No, 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 no one's buying it. There isn't being look at the, look at the UK. Yeah, I mean, this is this is a miserable state of the UK. Uh, and frankly, I mean, from from my perspective as a as a you know, Aussie expat living there for four years, five years, and looking at it, I'm seeing a country turning into a third world economy. Mm. And the, the, there's nobody, there's very little innovation, very little manufacturing. Uh, all the innovation is taking place is so-called financial innovation, which is not innovation at all. It's it's Ponzi scheming, um, and the, the place is running down. And it's running down because you don't need to worry about uh, replacing. Uh, some sloppy uh, uh, manually done process because you're paying the worker crap wages anyway and uh, and you'll go on with that old system. So the, the rundown state of UK uh, infrastructure is incredible in comparison to what happens with the case in Europe. And I think a, a part of it is that the cost of living and the wages are so poor in the UK that employers couldn't be bothered uh, innovating because they're getting it done on the cheap by labour anyway. So, and interesting, you mentioned the financial sector because, of course, they do get paid high wages. So they would be pushing up this productivity number, wouldn't they? Even though they don't produce anything. <laughs> well, this is the trouble. That's the other thing. The way we measure the contribution of the finance sector to GDP is by adding up their wages and bonuses. Mm. Because it, you can't. No other. This is one of the hassles. And this is why um, my Michael, good mate Michael Hudson, refers to them. As the the fire, it's actually the, the term in the national accounts is the fire sector. And that's pretty broke, but they burn down the rest of the economy. Finance, insurance, and real estate. Now, the only way you can measure their output, um, they, they can in the real estate at least. There's construct construction. Construction yeah. gets the building of new houses. So all the process of selling new houses and selling insurance and selling financial instru- instruments, that becomes what's called the fire sector. And to work out so-called productivity there, they simply add up the amount of money it costs. Now, that ain't productivity. That's a cost. Yeah. But we add it to GDP. In many ways, we should be subtracting it from GDP to get an accurate figure. So, yes, that does distort the whole system, and it makes it look like the country is productive when it's wasting more money in finance. So going back to Verdun's law then, or this or this idea that, you know, when things are good, you're going to see increased productivity, and you're saying it's more for machinery than people, um, you know, working that little bit harder because they're probably working as hard as they can anyway. Hmm. Doesn't this raise the question then that, uh, I mean, governments should be doing everything they can to provide stimulus, not austerity, which, as you've described, is uh, having a tragic uh, effect on the UK. And it does raise the question whether the central bank should be less inclined to uh, up interest rates. So we get to you know, the situation where the, um, the, reserve, the, the reserve, the Fed in the United States has just lifted rates, uh, you know, and uh, there's question marks around that. Should they be, should they yeah, be we- running the economy hot? You know, higher growth is going yeah. to improve productivity. And this this is this is the um, the perspective that, uh, like, to some some extent, parts of, parts of modern monetary theory have, and I agree with it that this in this becomes back to this issue. In particular case, you get a higher rate of growth coming out of this kind of this economy when you've got it under pressure, and um, and that uh, again relates to work by a, a wonderful uh, Hungarian economist called Janos Kornai. And Kornai was looking at why did the Soviet uh, system innovate so poorly and why did the capitalist system innovate so well? And he came down to saying that the a Soviet economy is is is, 
characterized by a, a um, by supply supply uh, by de- su- demand pressure, whereas the the um, oh, I've got to think of the terms he used. But I've got, it's a while since I've read his work, but uh, but what he's arguing is that there's a sh- if you have uh, pressure on the economy coming from uh, a shortage of supply, meaning you can't get all the inputs you want, so you're resource constrained. Then in that situation, there's no point innovating. But if you're demand constrained, so if what you if you what you can't be sure of is getting demand for your products. Uh, then what you do to get demand for, to, to ensure the demand comes to you rather than a competitor is you innovate. Mm. And he said capitalism is characterized by a demand shortage rather than a supply shortage. Uh, whereas the socialist system, which actually closely, clo- clo- most closely approximates what neoclassical models actually build. The model the neoclassicals are building literally, quite literally, Frequently they say the central planner chooses yada yada yada, and then show that the, the, the central planner's choice is exactly the same as be made by a perfectly competitive economy. They are modelling socialism. They are not modelling capitalism. <laughs> if they're any, anywhere near any any existing social system or any any existing universe, it's a socialist one they're modelling. Um, How dare and, you! But, but, yeah, I know. Right. <laughs> ironic, isn't it? And yet, it's ironic. This, what you describe, though, the situation where if somebody's wages are too high, they will inevitably be replaced by machinery. Doesn't that mean then that wage push inflation will find its natural level and won't get out of control? And yet, that fear that inflation is going to get out of control is exactly why central banks think they've got to stop the economy from overheating and therefore they lift interest rates. Yeah, that's a large part of it. Again, their thinking is non Again, they're, 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 this obsession they have with equilibrium thinking. Mm. Uh, what we're talking but isn't, about but is it is, not- it is almost like a, a wages equilibrium that you're describing, isn't it? That it's always going to find its level because if it gets too high, you're going to re- be replaced by machines. I'm talking about a dynamic process, not mm. not an equilibrium. Okay, this, uh, this what what they're looking at is an equilibrium. They don't even they don't even they just assume labor productivity falls out of the sky. Now I'm doing the same thing when I assume a fixed rate of labor productivity. But what Verdun is saying is, well, if the level is not fixed, it depends upon the level of economic activity, and you'll get a high level of innovation uh, when there's high rates of economic growth, and you'll get when there's low rates of economic growth. And I have literally built that into my models in Minsky back in my PhD days. Um, and I got a, you know, a, a very volatile system, but it was, again, it improved my approximation of my models to the actual cycles of capitalism. So Verdun is saying if, if, you, if you do have this relationship, the best thing you can do is you're in the positive end of it rather than the negative end. Mm. Now, what we've ended up in because of this obsession about avoiding inflation, we're in the negative end of that. So one of the, one of the benefits, benefits of uh, controlling inflation has been a lower rate of productivity growth. And so we're getting uh, what we're getting is you know, prices aren't rising as fast, but the actual real output isn't rising as fast either. Um, you want to be you're better off to get the higher real output growth or the higher rate of technological change because that's what we actually need in the long term. Uh, with and 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 the inflation is is again Friedman gave an obsession about the dangers of inflation without teaching about the the dangers of low of low levels of, tev, of innovation which is what we ended up in as a result of it so it seems like there's only one world leader who's talking this way I mean might be applying it badly but this idea that uh, let's pump up the economy and uh, let's get you know let's make sure the Fed doesn't destroy it because we're going to get better productivity if we get more people working it's only one person talking like that isn't there no there's two the other one's Z 
Oh, uh, yeah, that's true. Okay. And, they, and they're both arguing against each other, <laughs> ironically. But and they're both very similar personalities. One's, one's got, one's got a, they've both got serious narcissistic personality disorder, so they've got a lot of things in common. Right. But they're equally, equally absurd hairdos. Right. But they're both having economic growth, of course, while the rest of us are not. And presumably, if they see that growth continue, then we're going to see their productivity in, in, increase from what we're saying. Yeah, yeah, the, the, it's a positive feedback process. It isn't just a, you know, like a, a linear gain. It's a non-linear gain, and that's where the that's where real gain comes from in capitalism. Okay, to what point? Final question for you: To what point? Because you can't surely just keep on saying, "Well, the better we're doing, the better we're going to do." That has to be a point at which you say, "No, productivity is going to the growth of productivity is going to slow now." No, look, I'm not going to be coming back to becoming a little Elon Musk fan thing here, okay? Uh, and you you come up with new ideas, new ways of doing things which nobody's ever considered before, yeah. which were laughed at when they first come out, and then ultimately they become completely accepted. So right from the Wright brothers to the days when I'm be flying off to Sydney on Saturday uh, in, in two hops, and probably in three or four years' time it'll be one hop, um, uh, it, 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 one of one of Musk's little intentions there is to replace it with a rocket, uh, which will take half an hour to do the journey. And I must say, I'm just watching a recent uh, podcast on on that front, or a, a vid, vidcast with uh, his chief, uh, his uh, corporate man. I've, I've forgotten her name, but a woman who runs who runs SpaceX. Um, she said that they've. The only the, the challenge I had about the whole idea of flying by rocket from from London to Sydney, and what G forces be talking about? Because those rockets, when when you've got the astronauts going off for flights to the moon and stuff like that, I think the G forces are running at about. I, I don't believe twelve is possible, but I think they're hitting G forces of six and eight, which means you're, you 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 would hardly have to have the weight of a, like a five hundred kilo person sitting on you. So you get a free fa- you get a free facelift with every journey. Basically, yeah. so- I, I, I couldn't see that being being maintained <laughs> by your average work uh, businessman. But in fact, it's two G. Right. The acceleration will be two G. So you put up with two G acceleration for about ten minutes, and then two G on the way back down again, and you do the journey in in half an hour. Now c- consider that in terms of labour productivity. Okay, that's not the the, the, the airline host the, the airline stewards. So the rocket stewards will not be putting any more calories in than the airline stewards currently do. But if you measure the productivity of the workers... Well, they won't be doing anything at all. They'll be stuck to the floor, won't they, with the g Except when they're floating in space. (laughs) (laughs) Intermediate flight will be perfectly smoothly floating. And if you spill that cappuccino, it's going way down there. It goes on everybody simultaneously. That's right. So you can do it indefinitely. Mm. uh, So the only constraint on all of this then is energy, which we've talked about before under the conversation for another day but you can keep on yeah. going until you run out of resources basically oh no no, no. or you or your the dumping of, of waste you're doing courtesy yeah. energy using yeah. destroys the biosphere yeah yeah absolutely okay similar sim- uh, ceiling on the whole thing great discussion steve we'll catch you again very soon thank you you're welcome yeah that was a good meaty one now look next time on the debunking economics podcast capital gains tax does it actually encourage investment and does it therefore grow the economy or is it just a tax dodge for the rich i think that might be a bit of a leading question but we'll examine it in a bit more detail next time on the debunking economics podcast with professor steve keen i'm phil dobby i'll see you then 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy The Y Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search The Y Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.